This is Drowning Sound Podcast, Season 2, Episode 2, all about the future of music journalism. This is my conversation with Greg Cochran, who's been everywhere from online editor at the NME to Loud and Quiet magazine to working at the BBC. And this chat covers a lot of ground, but primarily we focus on how his work focuses on the climate space and how Anoni really inspired that journey. quite like the fact that everywhere we're on a Google you, you say you're a journalist and not a lot of people that work in music use that word. So I wondered if we could begin, before you even introduce yourself, to tell me what you think journalism is. That's such a big question and sort of like open-ended question to start with. I really appreciate that. And then thanks for inviting me on to speak about all of this stuff. Um, what is journalism? Uh, I think I know what news is, and then I think that helps me understand what I think journalism is. I think news is basically what makes today different from yesterday. And then I think journalism is kind of the stories that we tell ourselves about what's happening in the world, uh, is, is, is my sort of interpretation. Um, but I also think that you can dig much further down into that. That's what I kind of like think of first off when you ask me what journalism is. I think of like, I think of what's happening day to day in the news um but obviously as we know there's many more levels to this than that um when you when you think about journalism and the different types of journalism um so that's my instinctive reaction uh but yeah i think i think it can we can you know we can go much deeper into that and say that you know i think journalism on a kind of feature level or an opinion-based level or things like that that it, it, it is different in that sense but equally valid but 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 different so your background is very varied so would you like to quickly give people the uh <laughs> less than five minutes yeah. cv <laughs> i i quite i quite like to begin with the fact that when i did google you one of the first headlines that comes up saying enemy.com editor leaves the business which i thought was quite funny <laughs> <laughs> yeah i know i know um i haven't read that article for well since since i since i left there and so we had to see that was just quite yeah quite amusing um okay so the very i've tried a quick version of me and what i've done um wanted to be uh, a journalist a writer whatever content maker uh since i was a teenager used to love going to the news agent after school buying music magazines kerrang was particularly big for me uh when i was when i was growing up and that was like a lot of the type of music that i loved my which which were of, the which were the bands that your kerrang era oh it was it was we were in the thick of new metal at that point <laughs> um and uh so yeah i was i was picking up kerrang but i was also picking up enemy so i basically would have like one cover would be Papa Roach, the other would be whatever, The Bravery or something. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so that's that's the kind of era. That's what we've got. Yeah, and and but um, and, and a little bit earlier than that, to be fair. But I, the my sort of getting into this, well, being a music writer, my brother won a competition in Kerrang to be a roadie for the band Incubus for the day. <laughs> And um, and he, I was incredibly jealous because he took his partner at the time instead of taking me. But I was still at the gig because I bought tickets anyway. Uh, but he was accompanied by a Kerrang journalist called Ray Alexandra, who was a writer that I really loved. I really, really, really appreciated her work. 
And so basically via that, managed to speak, met Ray that day and, um, and said, I really want to be a music writer. Can I send you some stuff that I've written? And generously, she said, yeah, there's my email address. And, and that's how it started. And, and, I, and, I, and I got in touch with Ray and then Ray gave me some feedback and encouragement. I, I didn't actually at that point go on to write for Kerrang or anything like that. But she was the one that kind of gave me the, I was like, my goodness, like, it can't be that terrible if like a journalist is actually replying to me. How, anyway. old, how old were you at the time? 14 oh maybe? wow okay so a couple of yeah. years i think when i was about 16 i had a very similar experience with my mm. first fanzine and zoe williams sent me some really lovely feedback mm. um, which i still find it strange when she pops up on tv and she's like a leading political journalist now um but yeah. at the time she was just a fellow <laughs> stereophonics fan <laughs> yeah, brilliant yeah yeah just to speak to that point, like I've gone on to work at different places that have had um, internships, work experience and, and things like that. I was lucky enough to basically be the main point of contact at NME for a while for like the work experience. And I'm still in touch with loads of those people now that I met and that had gone on to just do amazing things. And, and I collaborate now, make, you know, content with and, and that sort of stuff. So I've always been thought of that as a very like vital part of the ecosystem of being like I was supported uh, with time and considerate energy when i was starting out and so mm. i've always tried to give that at the same time um and yeah and so from there uh i managed to get some work experience at enemy and by just writing to them <laughs> we're like literally writing a letter uh and then uh, i used yeah, to I, write proper letters as well i always felt like it was going to be if you're, if it's to a magazine it felt weird to send an email i used to send like proper letters yeah, yeah absolutely and like i got a response back on like an enemy headed piece of paper from um the uh, from karen walter who who was always the sort of supporting uh, all of the different enemy editors and um and that was just so exciting <laughs> just to, to get a piece of paper that had like enemies logo on it so like yeah we'd like to invite you to come in at this point um and so yeah that was kind of the opportunity when did the work experience just always was fortunate to not live too far i always count myself lucky of being able to like i could get into london to do that work experience um because I was living outside of London, but I could, I could, I could get there to do it because I know a lot of people can't. And, um, and yeah, that was the start. Like went and tried, tried to work as hard as I could, meet people, just badger people to can I help you kind of stuff. Um, and then got, got started writing for enemy, which was brilliant. Um, do you remember uh, what your first byline was? I do. Yeah. It was a Cribs live review. Uh, oh, that, at, was that Tim Jones era of enemy where the Cribs were in there every week? <laughs> uh, it could win. I think this is early stage. I was commissioned by uh, the live editor on the magazine at the time, an uh, incredible journalist called Pat Long, who mm. sadly is not with us anymore. He was very much my, a bit of a mentor and also somebody who I just, uh, just hugely admired. Um, and Pat commissioned me to go write a Cribs review at Cardiff Barfly because I was studying at the time. And um, uh, basically, there were two amazing writers in Cardiff at that point, uh, Louis Patterson and Noel Gardner. And for whatever reason, I don't know what happened. <laughs> they were ill, <laughs> broken their wrist, whatever it was. But I'd, I'd already written up. five Cribs review by that point. <laughs> yeah, I, I got the sort of last minute call up and I was like, yeah, I'll do it. And, um, and so that was really, that was a huge thrill to, to, to get that first byline. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's, that's where it started, but just really just kept going from that point trying to like grow relationships with the team that I'd met and then got invited to do a bit of cover on the gig guide, which was like their listings part of the magazine. Uh, and, and, and yeah, and, and, and that via that managed to get to spend some time in the office, eventually got offered a permanent role, like supporting the gig guide and then the, the reviews team and things like that. 
which was fantastic. And then I, uh, a previous colleague of mine at NME, Julian Marshall, had left to go and work at BBC and was starting like an online, building out basically the kind of digital team at um, Newsbeat, which is the news program for Radio 1 and Radio 1 Extra. And uh, so I, I then left NME, went to work at the BBC for five years as their multi-platform music reporter basically oh, doing original journalism the ultimate bbc term isn't it <laughs> it really was and especially at that point which is like 2008 or something yeah. um and that was incredible like learning curve because i was not a radio journalist before that and then suddenly did have to become very much like a video content maker radio journalist presenter reporter script writer all of these things of skills i didn't have before uh and so that felt like very much deep end but um Loved basically having the brief of being told to just go and make original music journalism for 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 those audiences, um, which was fantastic, uh, and had some amazing experiences uh, working the BBC and and you know different artists getting to meet some incredible artists and 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 I think doing some like really meaningful work. Um, so what what was the uh least serious and most serious thing you think you remember from the BBC? I imagine that must have been the era of interviewing people like Dappy and one minute and then uh, like reporting on like via go go tickets the next and yeah that was exactly it so like there was some really serious stuff of like yeah i did a lot of reporting on the secondary ticket market at that point and also like file sharing and and all that kind of stuff was like big big at that point because i think we were deep in the sort of uh music industry transition to digital and how messy and scrappy and kind of and and you know in some senses ill-conceived that was um and so i think there was a lot of reporting on that yeah there was a lot of reporting on the secondary ticket market because there was just i think it just really uh resonated with the audience in terms of uh yeah suddenly kind of having to pay these prices or Mm -hmm. or you know for those those tickets um but then yeah there was definitely silly stuff um one of the artists that i got to interview quite early on was lady gaga and um we um there's still this is probably still online somewhere but the um i met her a couple of times and then she was playing headline in the o2 arena and i'd kind of put in a sort of very hopeful bid to say like kind of speak to gargar like for entertainment news uh and uh the answer was like you can speak to her dj dj starlight i think <laughs> her name was and i was like yeah that's fine so basically took took this interview with dj starlight was interviewing her in the dressing room backstage at the O2 before Gargo goes on stage and basically I hear the door open behind me and uh and basically Lady Gaga like just hijacks this interview and kind of like almost jumps on my back and is like <laughs> hiya I thought I'd, I thought I'd just like we, we, the, the intention was always to basically just upset this interview and surprise you and I was like okay that's brilliant and so we, we played that out lots on the radio yeah. <laughs> um which is great um yeah there were lots there were just there were so many moments there were there were yeah reflect on that period of like a lot of pride of like the the, the, the serious journalism and also some of the stuff that was like more entertainment based that was a lot of fun um so that was great and then left there and returned to enemy uh, which felt like a little bit of a homecoming in some senses and was the digital editor there um, for three years, uh, which was amazing because I'd inherited like what I went back to was very different to what I'd left five years previously because the digital side of the business had just grown so much. Um, and an amazing look, like, a really talented group of people working there as well. And so that was a, a great privilege. And the highlights of that were working on things like the NME Awards. You know, we live streamed it for the first time. I was underneath the stage at Brixton Academy with Paul McCartney like above me me just literally <laughs> with like my fingers and toes crossed being like 
I really don't want this live stream to go down. Uh, and things like Glastonbury, getting the getting the opportunity to plan enemies Glastonbury coverage was just amazing, mm. and uh, and to work on that. Um, so that was that was fantastic. Yeah, and um, had a great time there. Uh, and then just to, to really bring you up to speed, because we said we were going to do this in like oh no, I was briefly. I was joking about trying to do it in five minutes. Oh okay, I like cool. Because I, I actually think the story of how people get into journalism is so fundamental mm. to the things they end up writing mm. and i think a lot of the time we sit in the background to so the stories of people whose bylines you might have read loads never really come up um mm. and then we've not even got into some of the most interesting stuff we've done so i'll, I'll stop interrupting yep. you <laughs> no no not at all um yeah and then from there so when i first moved to london i met stuart stubbs who was the founder and editor of loud and quiet magazine which people that met may or may not be familiar with like an independent uh, music magazine um championing predominantly like emerging artists and i'd got to know Stu really well i'd always been a contributor for loud and quiet i'd always been a fan of the magazine and always been a contributor always really appreciated what Stu was doing and loved like the ethos and the tone and everything of loud and quiet um and so steward kind of always in the background kind of been like hey if you want to come and work on loud and quiet like we need to like have a digital part of what we do because we're still just like a newspaper that I'm distributing around uh, the major cities of the UK. Um, and so uh, after NME, I went and did that. And we basically, that was a kind of a startup. Like you don't hear that word often associated with music press, but um, we started a digital strategy from scratch. It was a new website. We, we launched a kind of family of podcasts. We, we thought more about like the kind of strategic models of like how people got involved with Loud and Quiet and, and the state of the of social media at that point, video series, all those kind of things. So to build that out from scratch, kind of in the in the image of loud and quiet, was was fantastic and a real privilege. Um, and then as time went on, I was kind of like brought other things into my world because like the the loud and quiet thing was was um, me working on it a lot of the time, but also just trying to to do other projects as well. Um, and so the last few years is um, is the. Uh... The lucrative nature of journalism the reason you're working on other projects as well <laughs> yeah lucrative it's the, yeah i'm sure we'll get on to talk about that um yeah absolutely and also just like the diversification like i kind of like i do always want to be working on other things and I, I, like I, and just sort of trying to grow and learn new skills and and just sort of like think about the future and feel satisfied with the work that i'm doing and like not that I, I wouldn't describe it as like getting bored with the things that i do but i just feel like a kind of like unless i'm sort of like propelled forward i don't i, I just don't feel it doesn't quite sit right with me i, I think um, also um that thing of where the audience is and mm. like what's the medium isn't necessarily always the the thing that people have always consumed and i think it's it's one of the reasons i wanted to speak to you because i think you've done a really interesting job of like i hadn't really thought about how important working at the bbc would have been to then you really understanding podcasting because mm. when you've done broadcast radio to then really understand the intimacy of speaking to people in their headphones on a podcast mm. um and understanding that you're also speaking to that 14 year old you that was buying kerrang and mm. that you want to reach a person that cares as passionately about the topics as you do and to reach them in a format that helps the artists you like reach the reach the potential audiences and mm. that's not always writing 
like certain types of content anyway so loud and quiet and yeah the the kind of yeah likes. and there's been quite a few different podcasts but then you, you your name started to pop up a lot more in the guardian in places doing a lot more writing mm. i noticed a, a few years ago um, yeah so i would say there's a link that comes at to like in my period at loud and quiet where it's kind of the the gateway to a lot of the work that i do now which which in summary a lot of my focus now is telling stories creating content working with organizations um at the intersection of climate change and uh, popular culture and um, and so that was the genesis of that was basically when as well so i was still doing a lot of work on loud and quiet um, uh, and only put out an album called hopelessness in um it was 2016 and um loud and quiet invited me to go and write the cover feature and go and meet Anoni and, and speak to her and that 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 album is a lot it's about a lot of different things but one of the, the major focuses of the the album is is, is climate change and and, and uh human created cl- climate change and our response or lack thereof and basically went and met Anoni had this most incredible conversation came out of it and I doesn't listen not, not you know this isn't overstating it. I walked out of that interview like pretty much a changed person because I, 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 it was a real, it was just a moment of change for me. I remember just going back into the loud and quiet office and, and Stuart was there and he said, oh, how was the interview? And I, and I was just like, I was almost stuck for words. I was like, it was a lot because it, it felt like we just sort of, I, I such a deep stirring of lots of different kind of feelings and emotions and thoughts for me of being like, okay, just held a really, really what felt like a very, very big conversation about the the state of humanity and 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 what the future presently and future looks like. And I also just felt a, a kind of like a, a complicit a complicity. I also felt um, I was like, why did I why don't why do I not know all of this stuff? Like like and only kind of schooled me on so much of that in that interview. And I, and so basically it was this spur on that I was like, I need to, I need to really bring myself up to speed about what's going on in climate. Uh, and so I did like, as part of that cover feature, I went out and I spoke to climate scientists and experts in like, climate communication and tried to build like a kind of build a picture around what was actually going on. Like why, why did Anoni appear to be like an outlier speaking in these terms about what's going on? And, and that was it. And so from that moment on, I kind of found myself really interested in in that and then through the other work that i was doing with loud and quiet we had a we have a podcast series called midnight chats which is like a it's a, an interview series with artists just found that like that topic of conversation was coming up more and more because then you had like the uh school strike and greta thunberg and like the fridays for futures movement and all that kind of coming to a head in in like you know uh 2019 2020 before the, the kind mm. of pandemic and things like that and so it was a, it was something that people were really deeply feeling. And so I found myself having those conversations a lot more. One of the and things I, I found quite interesting, actually, is when I've spoken to artists, they find it such a big topic to even write songs about. But mm. it's something that when they're given a platform, they feel it's quite important to bring up if it feels like. And I know that there's reasons why artists don't talk about it. And in, in fact, one of my plans with this podcast is to do a whole series um, inspired by your Sounds Like a Plan podcast, which we'll get onto in a minute. Um, to really look at where the industry's at from mm-hmm. from a fan point of view, because I know that one of the reasons artists don't speak up is because they do travel a lot to tour, but the mm. footprint of a show is the audience much more than the artist. So any of the hypocrisy around that 
where artists don't speak up because they feel like, well, I can't speak about it because I could be a hypocrite. Mm. Um, anyway, I, I, I just would... Yeah, just would, there's so much to get into on that front. <laughs> yeah, and I'm conscious of time because obviously this... But I just would really like to know how you felt in that moment when you came out of that interview. Did you feel hopeful or did you feel existentially kind of like the world is ending yeah someone has just sounded the alarm pulled back the yeah. curtain revealed the wizard and i'm not sure because i i remember i had that feeling i went to a judy's bicycle event and they mm. just really they talked through a presentation it was possibly mm. the most important powerpoint i've ever seen mm. um and i just remember sitting there thinking how like and and obviously you start to understand that we run in, we live in a world where the money decides what is on the news agenda and what isn't. And, mm. but actually I think one of the bigger issues is that people just aren't aware. And I, I'd just be curious of how, like, I think it's so important because I remember hearing four degrees and being blown away by it. And I think there was a piece for like national geographic or something to coincide with the single coming out. And I remember reading that and thinking, whoa, this is, this is not just a piece of art or a piece of protest art. This is, this is a call to arms. This was like a real kind of stirring in a way that I don't think I've really felt in music for quite a long time. So anyway, so I'd just be curious if you can remember how you really felt in that moment. Yeah, it was dread and foreboding and fear. <laughs> and just like, and just as like, like as if, yeah, it was absolutely, it, it was those things. And, and I, and I, and it really, it just sat in my head for so long. Like, yeah, I've been lucky to interview a lot of artists over the years and I cannot name a single other interview where I've come out and it's like dominated my thoughts for just weeks and months on end. Mm. I still think about it now. I mean, I know that's because I often tell the story, but you know, I, again, I was fortunate enough to interview Noni in the last few months and, and we got to kind of do like part two of that interview, mm. like seven years later. And that was really, really fulfilling and nice to be able to like share gratitude with her and say like that was a really big moment for me and um and we we talked about how how far we thought things had come in terms of uh action on climate but also um uh she's particularly interested in the reporting around it like she re like reads a lot consumes a lot of of kind of media about it and was really interested from a journalistic point of view to hear whether she thought that i working on that side felt like there had been progress in in that respect I think there's definitely like in terms of <laughs> from a from a financial position, you can probably pitch a lot more than you could have done five years ago around like, for instance, as on the time of speaking, you were at the Billie Eilish event, the overheated event this week and mm. wrote a really long piece for the NME. And I can't imagine that's a commission that five years ago would have been as exciting to an editor to have paid for you to spend a whole day at a, at a conference. Yeah. Um, I mean, Billie Eilish's name probably helps with the traffic driving element of it, but yeah, hundred percent. Um, are things easier to pitch? Um, I don't really know, to be totally honest. I don't really have a comparison, but I think that one thing that I would say is I'm really, um, I would love to see more journalists in the culture sphere, culture and arts, music whatever whatever it might be tv film dance theater have uh more like intersectional um 
lens into what's going on with climate and feel comfortable about reporting in that. And that's one thing I'm really keen to do. I haven't been able to do it yet, but to deliver some of the the work that I've done in the past couple of years, I would, I would love to be able to share that more. Like I look around and I, I don't really know many other journalists that kind of, that do this. And like, on one hand, somebody might be like, oh, well, that's, that's a great niche to have. And I'm like, well, I don't want it to be my niche. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, like, I really want other people to be doing this. The more we need more stories about what's happening with this. And, and the, way, the way we get more stories is more journalists, more editors, more content creators really um, understanding that it kind of like permeates every aspect of, of 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 how we exist and how our society works and i do think there's been a lot of progress made and development in that space and so i think we are we are uh making good progress and quite accelerated progress in the last like 18 months two years or so uh, but it could still be more and i think it definitely could still be more in like the the culture stroke art space definitely because it does feel like if you think about the the first point you made about made about what journalism is and that it's news it should be news every day that the future of humanity is in peril. <laughs> like mm. if you think about how COVID dominated the news for like a year and a half, mm. um, that was an existential threat to society and to kind of civilization. And it, it doesn't feel like like even the huge weather events, which I know the Whataboutery crew don't necessarily put down to being about the impact of climate of humans on climate change. And I think mm. like I can I can see that it's such a complex topic that it's difficult for some people to talk about, think about like, mm. and I think the, the thing that this interested me recently is reading lots about the, like Rebecca Solnit talking about how we need much more hope around mm-hmm. discussions around climate. And like, there's, there's like that Duma thing. And, um, but then I often think about the day of the dead in Mexico and how they, they spend that moment thinking about death in order to think about the life and meaning and like the point mm. of everything. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I don't really know how music carves out more space for these, these discussions. But um, before we talk about what you've been doing with um, the course you did, it was early this year or last year. Be curious. Mm. How did the Billie Eilish event feel? Like how, how do you feel knowing that you're quite in, ensconced in this space to have one of the biggest artists in the world, turning around and going, this is what you should be talking and thinking about. How does that feel to you for someone in the space? Um, so many parts of what you just said, I'd love to speak to, if okay. that's okay. <laughs> yeah, go on. Uh, so, so Billie Eilish, I think, um, Billie Eilish is very much like a leader when it comes to music and, and the conversations around climate, but in a way that I think is really nuanced and smart and and almost sort of like is a reflection on the future that I think that lots of us would like to build um, in the sense that it feels like very fair and feels quite like democratic and generous. So the, the climate event that she put on is called Overheated. It's the second time she's brought it to London and it was brilliant. What a great day. It was a roller, it was called a, it was like a roller city place. Yeah. It was really fun. It was really vibrant. The audience was, was super young and so respectful and so into it. And there were like families there and uh, not the type of like thing you might assume like a climate, not the word conference because it wasn't a mm. conference, but you know, that type of forum I've been to has been in the past. Um, so one, that's really important and speaks to that point about hope that you mentioned from Rebecca Solnit, because I think like hope 
hope comes from action, right? And seeing action on the things that we need. And so actually it was very solutions-based, a lot of the discussion and topics. Um, and therefore I think the whole thing did feel quite hopeful. But just to go back to Billie Eilish, she doesn't, I got to interview Maggie Baird, who's uh, Billie's mother at the event, who was talking about, um, about Billie's leadership in this. And she basically said like, Billie doesn't consider herself an expert. She's not an expert on clean energy or sustainable aviation fuel or like anything like that. But she knows that she's amongst the community of people or is aware of them that very much are and is amazing people in those spaces. So she, the way she, what she does is her leadership is to create a platform for those people that don't, that could do with BI, she's enormous platform. And so that's why it was brilliant. The, 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 the speakers, it would predominantly, uh, they were really young. They were people that aren't that like generally at like other climate oriented events might be kind of sort of classified as like the youth brigade kind of like put in the youth box. Um, and it was great. It felt very, whilst it was very much grounded in the reality of what's going on, it felt, um, solutions focused. And in that sense, I think that the people leaving that day felt agency when they left. And that's really important because if you don't feel that, then you feel fatalistic and you feel that it's already lost already. Mm. And like, really, if you feel, if you, if, you, if, the, if those are your overriding feelings, which I don't dispute absolutely. And they're completely valid if you do feel like that, cause I'm not going to ever tell anybody how they should be feeling about this. Um, then, uh, when you feel agency you feel like you can do something and you can go somewhere and that's where the hope comes in i think i thought it was interesting i watched about three or four hours of the youtube stream i had it on in the background whilst doing other things um mm. and i sat and watched a lot of it for about two hours quite focused on it and i thought one of the most interesting things was the stop cambo campaign just said come to one of our drop-in sessions mm. like and that idea of like you don't need to know what you're talking about you can just mm. turn up and listen um and that idea that you can just hop on a zoom call with people that are actually doing things like mm. even if you turn up and you didn't like it and it doesn't feel like it's for you at least it was pretty quick and easy and simple you didn't have to get on three trains and um sit somewhere and pay for a ticket like the barriers of entry to be involved felt quite and i think there was something quite nice about that that actually made me feel a bit like thinking about like DIY gigs I went to when I first moved to London and mm. um like we were quite we we tried to do lots of free events like we worked with FOP and we worked with um Rough Trade on the Skill East because I feel like that first step into music um mm. and I don't know whether this is the right term but when you were talking um about that Anoni interview that feeling of being radicalized in a way that possibly is like a bastardization of the word it's probably not the right word but mm. i think you do need those moments that that give you that that sense of appreciation and possibility and and kind of impetus to do something and i think mm. we i do worry that there's something missing in journalism in music especially at the moment that isn't opening those doors and making things seem possible like to be, like if people's ambition rather than becoming a writer now is becoming a YouTuber, then that's all on them. <laughs> like you can't send an email and get some experience somewhere and learn your craft and be mentored and all the other things which are incredibly important. Um, people are being mentored by like a fractured kind of 
choose your own adventure education into like watching YouTube videos and hoping that you've chosen the right one to sit and watch for 20 minutes and then watching mm. a three minute TikTok. And then, um, I don't know. I just feel like there's something in amongst, I know, I know it's not necessarily what you just talked about, but it's got me really thinking a lot about those moments, which give you the, both the appreciation and the passion. Um, and I think it's quite easy to not, understand why journalism is important for instance why platforming those things like that's that's the bit that i feel that's missing and that's i guess that's my quest in this series of podcasts to try and what is what is that grain that that drove me to begin with but also that's so important in other fields of journalism that don't feel as important in music because music as we both know, and I think we've not really had time to touch on the Sounds Like a Plan podcast, but so many of your interviews in that series have educated me, but also made me realize how important it is to have informed artists and informed people in the industry, because if you don't understand the problems, you can't begin to address them. And I know that sounds like the most obvious <laughs> to the point of almost being a tautology sentence of just like, it is so crucial to know the problem so that you can begin to address it and feel that it's important enough to focus your time and energy on. Um, anyway, I feel like it's like a whole soup of thoughts um, without any question. Um, but I guess it leads to... We should talk a tiny bit actually about the Sounds Like a Plan podcast because I think mm. it's a really important series of interviews. I mean, you got to sit in a broom cupboard with with Brian Eno, and um, <laughs> I, I think I think there's probably some other more important things that you've learned from that from doing that series. But how much has doing that informed your journalism? Lots, yeah. And so, like, the, so the the idea behind doing Sounds Like a Plan, which is a podcast, is all about how the music community is responding to the climate crisis in its many forms. So not just people that are in front of the microphone, those people that are behind the microphone, you know, maybe you work at a record label or design sets for stages or whatever it might be. Um, and the origins of that was that I, like I said to you earlier, we, I was making podcasts and like the conversation kept coming up lots. So I wanted to sort of define, create a space for like to, to dedicate to that because I felt like it deserved it and I wanted to do it really. Which being like I'm enjoying having these conversations. Like nobody's going out and interviewing these people and 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 holding these type of conversations. So that's where the idea came from. Um, how is it informed with journalism? It's 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 driven me to want to continue to to learn more about climate and and also just giving me a real um, passion to understand. The unique role that I think that popular culture plays in this, in terms of engagement, because as you said earlier, we, we I think it, we you know we've kind of both mentioned it throughout the course of the conversation. Like telling stories about climate change, engaging people on the issue is not not easy, because there is so there's a lot. The, the top of most level is like the extinction event of humanity, right? <laughs> that feels enormous, but then. You start drilling down and you're like, okay, what does that look like at like an international level? What does that look like a national level? What does that look like locally? What does that mean in my community? What what uh, what does that you know, and, and and it can just it's the overwhelm, basically. It can just feel like this is just too much. I'm never gonna be, you know, I think some people feel uh I'm never I, I, I don't get it all, I don't understand it all, and therefore I probably am better off not 
speaking on it yeah. or I'll, or I feel a bit uncomfortable with that. And so what we try to do with the podcast is basically, and in the other way that I do is just encourage a level of comfort of basically saying, well, I mean, literally at the outset of the podcast, I was like, I'm not an expert in this. I'm joined on it by my co-host Faye Milton, who's drummer uh, in Savages and the co-founder of Music Declares Emergency, which is a uh, campaign music co- campaign group on climate. Which most and people like, would know is their no music on a dead planet branding that's been all over festivals like Reading, wouldn't they? Exactly, exactly. And so Faye kind of is very much like certainly like so immersed in this that I was the kind of person there just asking all of the questions, if you like. Um, and so it, we were like guiding ourselves through this, learning loads, but like from the outset being like, we're not, yeah, we're, we're trying to find our way with you, the listener, to, 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 to learn more. And therefore just acknowledging that fact of like, and I've learned loads. And, but I think, and it's, it's, and what, what, two years on, two and a half years on from starting that, I feel like I'm still almost at the beginning um, of, of just trying to do that, which is why I've kind of moved more into a kind of, climate circles of, of of storytelling and content making and journalism because i just feel like there's still a lot more for me to do in that sense but i do think that like music the power of music and the arts and culture is yet to be fully harnessed if you like mm. in terms of like those stories because the transitions we're gonna have to make in huge areas which are things like transport and food systems energy actually like music is just such an amazing incubator for so many ideas, but also hasn't yet found a way to tell its story about its importance and its power and its opportunity to take people with them yet, I don't think. Um, and so that's where I'm really, I'm really passionate about trying to elevate those, those actions, those stories. And that's where I think my journalism is at now, is like trying to find ways to elevate that work that's going on. And you did some work, was it the Reuters Institute? Do you want to just quickly touch on what what that involved yeah. and kind of what skills you picked up? Mm. So um, the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism is based at Oxford University. Um, and they part of their work, they're, they're an amazing organisation that um, generally are reporting. If you're interested in the state of journalism in general, then they are constantly putting out insights, reports, data about uh, journalistic, journalist uh, storytelling uh, consumption like trends etc etc and one of the strands of what they do is focused on climate and they launched um, something called the oxford journalism the oxford climate journalism network um last year 2022 Uh, and two times a year they take uh they invite journalists to apply to be part of a cohort which is um around 100 journalists each time um and uh, I was fortunate enough to apply and get onto this year's cohort at the start of 2023. And it's a six month program where you join, yeah, like I say, 100 journalists. On my cohort, there was from like 56 different countries, I think. Huge range of types of journalists, literally from like politics reporters in Peru through to sort of Pacific Island video journalists or whoever it might be. Deliberately, people that aren't. Uh, well, some of them are like dedicated, like environmental journalists, but by and large, there were people working in areas like me that were kind of adjacent to climate, but obviously were increasingly going the uh, climate's coming in an important part of the reporting. Um, and so, yeah, I spent six months working on that, uh, which was uh, based on a series of kind of like um, 
seminars, there were briefings given by different people that were experts in their field, from like climate justice through to uh, colonial histories that relate to climate and where we find ourselves now. Um, energy, the role of like the cops in 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 as as kind of like um, annual events in climate reporting and things like that. And then they were surrounded with various like networking and workshop sessions and things like that. And broadly speaking, you kind of come out of that and then you are like an alumni of the Oxford Climate Journalism Network. And so I'm immediately plugged into not just my cohort, but previous cohorts. And so I, I'm, I'm suddenly part of a mm. group of international journalists who are all working on climate in some way, passionate about better reporting, because I think, as I said earlier, like the reporting around climate could be greatly improved and, I, and, and and therefore it's brilliant to be basically part of that sort of collection of people that you know are all kind of moving in that direction um so that was brilliant to finish in june i'm going to carry on doing some work with them uh for the next year or so uh which is really exciting and uh it's great to see the sort of um uh the results of that come through as, as in like, you know, I see like my, my new colleagues, if you like, on that, like producing journalism around the world that they wouldn't have been producing prior to being part of that. Um, and I should also say that any journalists listen to this, like the, the Reuters Institute and the, and the climate strand of what they do, they're publishing content all the time. So like do sign up to that, their newsletters and follow them on social media and places like that because their insights are fantastic and they're really, really um good at guiding you they, they run like events and stuff quite often as well that you can plug into and, and, and get information from so definitely one to, to 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 be across there's a lot in all that but i think i'm conscious of your time now um so my final Try. question is i was gonna ask having listened to having discussed all this what is music journalism but i think it possibly it should be what could music journalism be because mm. like i've been thinking a bit about how in the 70s like rolling stone would run those like hunter s thompson critiques of the u.s government which then obviously made him a legendary writer that wasn't really a music writer but it was a music publication and i've been thinking about how some of the best writing that i've read from everywhere from vice to the guardian to new yorker um around music is not necessarily about an artist or if it is, it's using the artist as a jumping off point to discuss mm. a bigger topic. Um, and I've also just been obviously <laughs> spending the last decade or so a bit like yourself, looking at how audio journalism and radio and video and social media and all these other places where you can tell stories has changed. Um, so having given you a minute of thinking about it, what do you think the future of music journalism could be? or should be um my honest answer is i don't know but what i witness at the moment is like not just unique to music journalism but i think it's broadly symptomatic of where we're at with journalism and that is it's all based on the kind of the models that support different media outlets and like what their financial models are to actually support themselves and make themselves viable and i think music is just a, a microcosm of that in many ways um and so I think that, you know, what you've got broadly, the trends that we've seen are that, um, you know, as the kind of rise of digital came and like people basically made a bet on one of two strategies or, or maybe three, uh, which was loads of people are going to come to our digital platforms and therefore we can be supported by advertising because we'll just have millions of people there. 
or we're basically going to concentrate on our niche audience and we're going to create some kind of like um, subscription model and uh, and we'll be supported by those people who love what we do and, and really appreciate what we do. And what we've seen in music journalism is that like basically that and broadly like, you know, when you, you have to look at recent trends with Vice and, and uh, BuzzFeed or whatever it might be, like so much disruption came along and, and particularly kind of like made the 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 the, um, the model around digital advertising just not particularly viable um and then the subscription thing in itself i think is is great because i want that i think that that nurtures connection but it also means that if you're an outlet you're basically you're serving your audience and therefore you 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 just keep making the stuff that they want if you know what i mean like because you're you're it's like having a customer and so mm. therefore you know that you're your audience want a certain type of thing. And so you concentrate on delivering more of that thing, which I don't think necessarily leads to um, you being able to create more open-minded spaces for, for journalists. But it's a bit like a band that keeps making the same record because their fan base liked it. They might yeah. they might be into far more interesting music and be wanting to play with other instruments, and yet they're kind of like yeah. caught in that super serving an audience, aren't they? I think mm. that's my that's one of my concerns about the subscription world. Mm. And I think my honest answer is that you you're making a series of conversations because you're kind of wrestling with that, and you don't necessarily know the answer to that yourself. And I would say that I'm very much in the same. I, I classify myself in the same in terms of I don't know what the future of kind of music journalism looks like. Um, I know that like the models that have been built around lots of journalistic kind of out, uh, music journalistic outlets that I, that I know of are kind of like hanging by a thread and therefore um, I, but I, I think I think it's this sense that like we've not built sustainable ecosystems around media and, and then you can put music journalism within that because and so like you know something something happens and then the kind of the, the bottom just falls out of it and just and, and, I, and I see still a lot of people a lot of things that are just that are existing because of the pure passion of people that are driving it through and um, and so I don't know I, th I think maybe the answer is that what I see as it being is probably quite a sort of fractured landscape in different kind of platforms as it is now what I hope it would be um Personally speaking, like I would love to see like a dedicated outlet that was kind of um, that was was bringing in together. I think there's so much to say about what's like happening in our kind of changing world with climate and, and kind of pop culture. There's no there's no one place that's sort of particularly dedicated to that. There are some brilliant platforms out there doing great work, like I love Positive News, for example, and um, that, that generally do have like a really kind of intersectional mindset to all this. But I would love for the you know personally that there would be enough appetite. And I think like awareness around all this is it's now really huge that I think there might there might be. But if there was a, a model that could be surrounded by that, that was viable, that there was an outlet that was dedicated to that that intersection, I'd love to see that. Mm. But um to speak to the point about generally what music journalism looks like, I I I, I honestly don't know. But what I do know is that like if it would if it's gonna last with more than a short term future, then it needs to have like ecosystems around it and by that i mean like not just the people not just like an outlet that's that i think like artists need to get it the labels the teams everything's involved needs to understand like the importance of why they want that thing in their world and therefore like 
let's let's make that happen so that mm. it's resilient and that it, it kind of delivers for everyone. Um, it reminds me of a conversation I had with Grizzly Bear years ago. Um, they were kind of frustrated about how much like TV coverage there was on certain publications versus the amount of music coverage. And, um, and I said, well, look, who's spending the money? Like Drowning Sound hardly ever got adverts from record companies. I know Loud and Quiet is different because in print, I think people understood the importance of keeping the publication going. But online, it's like where well, you can hyper-target your Facebook followers so why are you going to spend your online budget on an online magazine, like mm. where you're going to reach general music fans? Mm. And I think we've lost a lot of that. If you're trying to sell a record, then you want to market it to the people that are already a fan. You're not going to try and market a record to people that are not already a fan of the artist, because mm. I think being a fan of a genre is difficult. And I don't know. I think I'm also conscious of if you follow the money and you, we've been talking about climates, like, there's any number of publications or things like GB News, which are funded by dark money <laughs> that's very tied in with the anti-net zero campaigning and tied in with the, the interests of the biggest oil companies in the world. And you start to rewind out and you can see the media that can be subsidized um, by both advertisers and benefactors. And I wonder, and this, this is a something like, for instance, one of the first bands I ever wrote about a demo review of was Muse. And I've often wondered if I'd had an ability to get like 0.5% of the of the money that Muse have earned over their career, come back into what Drown and Sound was doing, how different it would have been as a publication. Similarly, when I signed, I did the first Kaiser Chief single and I didn't get shares in their career. But again, if I'd had like 1%, 0.5% and I've been thinking about really nice things like Navarra Media have got their donate an hour of your salary a month. <laughs> and it's such a simple thing. Like if artists donated um, like 1 million streams worth of income to a publication that supported mm. them or something, and they're now got like, look at the, is it the billions and billions of streams that someone like Drake's got. And there's a whole ecosystem of media which trying to get clicks off the back of Drake and is probably running content that he doesn't want out there because they need to cover every single thing he does in order to generate traffic. And I think yeah. we've got an ecosystem which is meant to be self-sustaining. And like you were saying, it's like the models of advertising versus subscription. And it's like, well, you can do the stuff in the open for advertising and then someone's trying to do the same thing behind a paywall <laughs> or a subscription mm -hmm. model. And well, what are you going to do? You're going to read the loud and quiet review behind the paywall because you trust their journalism and you trust their critics and you you know their taste. Or are you going to read 25 other reviews online from 25 other publications for free? And it's difficult to then bridge those two universes and all of these other things that, that I'm in the existential mm. crisis about. <laughs> yeah, and I think what you described there is, you know, right at the top of this conversation, I said that there's like all these different levels of journalism and like I think criticism is is criticism and that's the right mm. term or not Crit critics critique yeah. uh is, is 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 absolutely i think that's where a lot of the tension actually in this and and that's specific to music and art and like the kind of reviewing that we do of those things so that's where it's maybe differentiated because as you just described like if you were to you know to have support from a, an artist or a label because of your early support because you champion something you'll you, you kind of how does that impact your freedom to talk about whether that art is yeah. good or not as time goes on 
Mm. And so I think there's potentially like a, a tension there. Um, and also, do you just start championing everything in order to try and get to share in their futures? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think that's, again, don't have an answer to that, no. but we definitely observe that that's like one of the things that I think is a major player because I think certainly lots of the outlets that I've worked with would, would want to that feel like an integral part of what they do and what they want to do and a reason for that they're actually serving their followership their audiences are that they have like editorial independence to basically call out what's good and what mm. well, not call out but they feel like, like they have editorial independence to that their their collaborators their critics their writers have the freedom to say whether they thought something was good or not mm. otherwise they kind of like they really do reflect on themselves and say well what are we here doing if we're not able to say this is good we support this and or this isn't as good or whatever it might be then like are we the thing that we want to be <laughs> and i think and then it asks questions about like the, yeah really that stuff and then it also asks the question of like did you should you invested the time and the editorial budget into something that's not good when you could have invested into something that is good and like i've been thinking a lot about some of the stuff that drown and sounds name is associated with is stuff that negative reviews of records i actually really like like there's like a six out of ten of a panic at a disco album which i think is a flawless debut album and like and i sit there i'm like that got a load of traffic because it was one of the only slightly negative reviews of the album or mm. and things like that. And I like some really it's like some of our negative reviews are very funny but like and entertaining and people quite enjoyed that but you then speak to artists about their mental health and it's not specifically directly to do with those reviews but um in the current climate when everyone is climbing up a wall like do you really need someone throwing bricks at you it's like there's plenty of other things they could have been spending investing their time in and, and the attention of their audience and like the more you dilute the audience's attention and i don't know i'm 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 massively flipped from where i used to be whereas i thought crit negative criticism or constructively negative criticism was important I mean, I did write a Jessie J review and it was just a script of the A&R man and every one of her responses was an ellipsis because I didn't think it sounded like she existed on her own album. But that's a whole other thing of just like creative writing in a way. And it's like, I don't know. Um, I, I think we can agree that the future is unwritten. <laughs> uh. Yeah. I mean, and, and what? just a final thought. I'd, I mean, I'd like, I'd love to hear, I mean, I'm looking forward to hearing these conversations that I have with uh, different people. And, and, and I think... The conversation around music journalism can often, when I see it like rise up at uh, festivals or conferences or whatever, it's often like a group of music journalists or editors talking. But what I would actually like to see is to get in a, a room with those, let's call them like involved parties, mm. <laughs> like your artists, your labels, whoever it might be, and like to have those discussions about like. Do, do you recognize that like, is it important that there are people out there with autonomy to to write about art and all these kind of things do you want to support those publications because they're useful to you because you can then go out and base your marketing campaigns based on pull quotes or star reviews or whatever it might be like what's important to you and what isn't and and, and go from there because right now it feels like maybe those fundamental conversations aren't happening between yeah. people and therefore i think i don't know what the answer to that would be but i think that there would probably be at least a few pathways uh, or answers question or, or answers to questions that would mm. come through that that I think would be healthy to have because I think it feels a bit stuck 
Yeah. Otherwise, you get that you're the person who doesn't come back to my email, and I'm like, I get 700 emails a day, <laughs> like, yeah. and yeah. your subject lines are not very exciting. Could you make your subject lines a bit more like a tweet yeah. so I can find your emails more intriguing? And like, yeah. and I, I've had those conversations over the years, and I think there's definitely a huge disconnect from what the industry needs journalism to be. For instance, artists spend out money on bios. And then magazines are employing a journalist to write almost the same feature. It's like, surely you could have your launch feature co-funded by the artist and the publication. And then you'd have a really great launch piece to kind of go out where an artist is embedded. And um, I don't know, I think with Loud and Quiet, you've done so many interesting things. And I think it's such an important publication you've been part of. And like, and it's given me so much food for thought. And I think a lot of people think, music magazines are competitive with each other and it's like my my competition is i want to do stuff as good as other people it's like it's mm. competitive in like like there was definitely an era where we saw a lot of the artists that giant and sound championed give their first exclusives and the stuff that was traffic worthy to the bigger publications because they'd crossed over into a bigger world which meant we weren't seeing the, the juice from it. And anyway, I can talk forever and we've talked for an hour and um, I'm so grateful for your time, Greg. Um, and uh, think, I think the, the technical idiom is more power to your elbow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely, um, definitely. But um, thanks, thanks for inviting me to speak all this stuff, uh, speak about this, this stuff. I, I really appreciate it and I look forward to hearing The Drowned in Sound podcast was hosted by Sean Adams. He produced it too. These credits were the credits read in a robotic AI voice created by Descript. I'll see you soon.